This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 11th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In the Washington foreign policy establishment, it's not uncommon to hear the claim that the United States is not, in fact, engaged in endless war. For Stephen Wertheim, a co-founder of the new Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, the claim taxes credulity. We talked about war and the establishment thinkers who believe we're not engaged in an endless one. Last week, that's before the president fired his national security advisor, John Bolton. It has been mentioned on uh, this program and I'm sure many others, this notion that seems to be all too popular in uh, Washington foreign policy circles. And that is just the notion that the United States is not engaged in endless war. And I know that's a that's a term that gets a lot of hackles up in general, but uh, even more deeply, the there are people who uh, make the claim, and people who either either ought to know better or do not view this war making that the U.S. is engaging in as substantial. Um, of course, it is, but view the United States essentially at peace. So in, in general, what do you make of, of, uh, of those people? I think some people can be forgiven for, for uh, making that, uh, having that thought. But what do you make of that general sense? Well, there are people who know the facts of what the United States is doing or certainly are paid to know the facts, whether they do or not. And they're making one of two claims, sometimes both simultaneously. One is that the United States is at endless war, but that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. So the uh, Council on Foreign Relations fellow and Washington Post columnist Max Boot made uh, this claim uh, earlier this year when he likened low-level warfare by the United States, in his view, to the Indian Wars in his term from the United States past or to British imperial policing. No big deal. These are good things. They keep the world at some sort of peace or they preserve law and order. Then there's the claim also aired that actually the United States is not really at war. Never mind uh, the thousands of ground troops the United States has stationed in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Never mind that the United States is bombing around seven, eight countries in Barack Obama's last year in office. The United States, best we can tell, dropped uh, 26, more than 26,000 bombs on seven countries. This doesn't really count, perhaps because Congress has not uh, authorized these wars uh, formally by declaring war as it should under the Constitution. But by that standard, the United States has not been at war since 1942. That's the last uh, congressionally declared war that the United States has been uh, engaged in. Now, there was some verbal trickery. Uh, I don't know if it's trickery. I guess, you know, it's trickery uh, that the Obama administration engaged in. They used, uh, that we're talking about uh, engaging in hostilities. Um, they used the term boots on the ground to refer to uh, what they perceived as a, I don't know, quote unquote, real war, perhaps. Um, the Secretary of Defense re- referred to kinetic military action, and he couldn't really keep a straight face when he did so. Um, and in, in some ways, 
uh, Donald Trump as president has tried to extricate the United States from a lot of these, from some of these conflicts, but uh, by other measures, he's kept a pace. He has uh, increased uh, the number of, for example, drone strikes. Uh, so where are we now with respect to war making um, uh, out of Washington, D.C.? As you suggest, there's a long history of classifying military engagements, arms conflict as something other than war because war brings about certain uh, legal obligations and war sounds bad to people. It sounds like something that should be the exception, not the norm. So when the United States is engaging in regular war making, there's there's a, a, a pressure not to call it that. However, I think we're in something of a unique situation at this moment. I mean, we have seen coming from both sides of the aisle, a popular demand to end endless war. Endless war is not a completely new phrase, but it has taken on a much greater prominence than it has in the past. And we've seen now the last two presidents, very different presidents, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, proclaim their opposition to endless war, with President Trump saying in his last State of the Union, great nations do not fight endless wars. So it is unusual, it's novel, that there is a strong demand uh, from the public and from some corners of uh, experts to say that American war making is one of the main problems with America's role in the world. And that is, I think, then causing a heightened contradiction with the behavior of the United States where the war on terror rolls on, the very people who say they are opposed to endless war intensify the violence. And so, you know, I'm I'm not saying that I'm optimistic about the situation, but the parameters of the debate do seem to be shifting, and that means that uh, the opportunity to take seriously the demand to end endless war uh, does exist. It could shape the future. It seems almost an admission that there is this massive disconnect between conversations uh, within Washington, D.C. and the foreign policy establishment and how Americans think about what actually constitutes war. It seems to it's, it's an admission of that by, I guess, making these claims public that we're not fighting endless wars, that uh, the United States is not engaged in, uh, you know, add your adjectives in here. Uh, a ground campaign. Um, but, you know, how do Americans think about it and how ought politicians to uh, take advantage of that sentiment in, uh, regarding U.S. warmaking? It's clear from public opinion surveys that the American public is fed up with American warmaking. They now overwhelmingly regret the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So do veterans, by the way, in the same proportions. We're talking 60% around, around that number, according to Pew. So this is a quite profound shift, and it's coming without a whole lot of thought leadership from the commentariat that gets on TV and gets a lot of space in the newspapers. So if I'm a savvy politician, 
uh, and I look at how the last two rather unlikely presidents succeeded in their primary campaigns, in part by blasting the war in Iraq as a mistake, which distinguished them from their competitors, I would think that this is a message to take and run with. And this is part of the reason why, uh, along with Trita Parsi, Suzanne DiMaggio, Eli Clifton, and Andrew Basevich, I've uh, co-founded the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft because we realize this is a message with real legs uh, among the public, but we need to solve this problem of the DC uh, elite not representing the views of the public and not even adequately representing the views of scholarly experts either. What is the diff- How do you differentiate between the views of, uh, let's say, the legal academy with respect to war making and the foreign policy establishment in Washington? What what difference? What clear differences are there there? Well, I think there's a profound difference of incentives. So the the of course I'm saying this in a think tank, but the think tank world in DC, and of course I'm founding a think tank, but uh, these are think tanks that don't take uh, foreign government money, for example. A lot of the uh, folks who uh, are paid to influence the DC policymaking process and to have uh, to, to, to shape the public debate are in institutions in Washington where they are funded uh, in large in no small part by the US government and foreign governments, uh, where there's not much of an incentive to seriously scale back the US military role in the world. And there's a lot of groupthink. There's not a uh, dynamic kind of interplay of interests and ideas that you see in, uh, in US domestic policy. So I think we need a more competitive foreign policy uh, di- uh, discourse, and that's why I think there's this kind of pent up um, grassroots demand for different voices on foreign policy. And when they see that, there's a lot of excitement. When I, uh, you know, just in my ab- observations, I'm obviously not an insider. I'm not an e- expert about these particular machinations, but it it seems to me that the president has uh, been extremely frustrated with the Pentagon uh, in with respect to the departure in Syria, with respect to uh, drawdowns in Afghanistan, and uh, you know, a lot of people have said that the Pentagon has essentially slow walked these policy changes that seems are very important to the president. Um, you know, what power does the Pentagon have to prevent uh, exit with respect to these wars? Well, it's the Pentagon and the other top advisors that the president has appointed and doesn't remove from their positions like the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, or the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. So I think the president does bear responsibility for the people he's he's appointed uh, and or and hasn't so far removed and replaced with better alternatives. Um, the Pentagon has, uh, we've seen this over several administrations, uh, a tremendous ability to shape the options that are uh, that reach the president's desk and ear. 
uh, it has the ability to um, uh, illustrate the dangers that can come from a what it would consider to be a hasty withdrawal, which may be real dangers. And then that's backed up by the real possibility that if there are immediately bad consequences to a withdrawal, uh, then that will be dra dramatized by the media in Washington and the president will be blamed. And I think that's something that weighs on the mind of of presidents when they face these these choices. So, so we've seen a couple presidents who it seems like they had instincts that were significantly less hawkish, at least in some respects, from the advisors that they appointed. And they've um, backed themselves into a corner. And so that's troubling because it doesn't seem like we have uh, experts that are available who can provide concrete, responsible versions of the kinds of plans that the elected presidents are asking for. You know, I I, I joked with people uh, when uh, President Trump was elected that if he's serious about these plans to exit a lot of these wars, he ought to spend a lot of time drawing the cameras and photographers and reporters to as many uh, soldier funerals as possible. I don't. I don't really think he he uh, uh, did that, but uh, to the extent that the media ought to be uh, presenting the costs of war and understanding that media companies are for-profit uh, companies, what advice would you have to them to to uh, I guess push along on this this groundswell of popular support for, if not ending, at least dramatically curtailing the wars that the U.S. is involved in? Yeah, you know on. On a very simple level, include a plurality of opinions in news stories and on op-ed pages. It's past time for this to happen. Uh, the same people who were cheerleaders for the Iraq War and other disasters uh, seem to have uh, suffered no consequences for for doing so. And so we should have a bias for. <laughs> making those people really justify where, why they continue to have some privileged insight into American foreign policy. And we should be looking to those who said at the time the Iraq war was an enormous mistake. There's no shortage of them. They signed petitions. They marched in the streets. We should be giving them a shot. Uh, and this should have happened uh, you know, a decade plus ago. So that's one place to start. And obviously more coverage of the costs of war uh, would be essential. The toll that it takes on uh, on our service members and their families is enormous. And I don't think we should be denying that they are actually at war when they clearly are. They're dying, they're being wounded, they have uh, immense medical needs. Um, but it can't just be, the coverage can't just be at the level of of compassion for uh, for those at war, uh, as important as that is, we also have to connect the dots. It has to be a political discussion that accepts as legitimate the point of view that the United States should not be fighting a lot of the wars that it's fighting right now. They cannot be dismissed through name calling like isolationism. 
it has to at least be a debate. So I would I would ask that much, which which is not asking a lot when you consider what uh, the media is supposed to be about. Let's take the example of of Syria, um, and you feel free to broaden it to Afghanistan. What are the the initial steps that this White House ought to take to begin to extricate uh, U.S. service members and, of course, our uh, significant U.S. blood and treasure uh, from these conflicts? Yeah, well, the administration has taken some steps signaling in public that the United States would not be around forever in terms of its ground presence. Uh, it started to facilitate, or actually just by virtue of announcing when President Trump did so at the end of last year, uh, that he intended to bring US troops home soon, uh, that already facilitated some negotiations among the parties in Syria, uh, particularly uh, Kurdish fighters uh, with whom the United States has been aligned. It needs to act diplomatically to bring the parties together. Uh, some of these parties are US allies, so this is a quite reasonable request for the United States to make clear that the United States is leaving uh, and uh, that the parties should reach an accommodation that probably nobody will be thrilled with, uh, but will be acceptable uh, to all the parties uh, and to see what kind of continuing US diplomatic role the United States to play. But we have to set clear priorities. And so if we continue to insist that all these things go right as a precondition for the United States to leave, there's a very good chance the United States will never in fact leave. And that's the position we seem to be in in, in Afghanistan. Of course, we'll, we'll watch to see what the administration is doing with its negotiations, but so far, all we really know is that the administration intends to get U.S. troop levels back down to the level that they were when the administration came in. So that's not ending endless war. Are there candidates on the Democratic side uh, who are offering a serious uh, proposal to extricate the U.S. from these, if not all, many of these conflicts? You know, uh, I think we've seen some hopeful messages from several candidates. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard have all been quite outspoken uh, about the cost of war, particularly in the Middle East. And a lot of candidates have talked about endless war and suggested that they would and the U.S. troop presence uh, after, after their first term in office. But we need to have a much more robust foreign policy debate on the Democratic side in order to pin these candidates down, um, both on, on specifics and as a general matter. You know, Where do they want to see the defense budget end up by the end of their first term, for example? That would be a a good question to ask. And I, I fear that we're not going to get the kind of debate that we need with these uh, you know, lengthy debates that keep circling around. Uh, they, they attempt to cover every issue in all of American politics within each debate. We should have a much more focused discussion. Having a single foreign policy debate or forum would be a very good idea. 
And it's odd that uh, in the primary season that, uh, at least odd to me, that candidates are not focused almost exclusively on foreign policy. Yeah, this is the issue uh, over which the president has the most control. And frankly, it's in primary debates that the nation sort of conducts the closest thing that we have to a debate over foreign policy issues. The other thing is, I think for Democrats, at this point, the center of the party has adopted or co-opted a lot of the left progressive ideas like Medicare for all. And so now there's a debate that sounds, at least on the surface, like it's about to what extent rather than do you want this option or this other qualitatively different option. On foreign policy, it's a bit different. I think the left of the party has a really qualitative um, disagreement with the center of the party and vice versa. And so you would think that if nothing else, that would incentivize uh, a foreign policy discussion, particularly for the progressive candidates, so they can show how, uh, make clear that they stand for a quite stark alternative uh, to the center of the party. So maybe that in a kind of backdoor way will propel a foreign policy discussion forward as we as we move on with the with the primary debates. Stephen Wertheim is a co-founder of the new Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us and suggest show topics on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 